Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Hey, welcome to the Cato Podcast. Brent and I have a very special guest tonight. We're going to sit down with John Becker. John Becker has a, a unique story that we think is important to share, as well as a, a relationship with tactical communities throughout the world, the nation, and uh, the state of California. So, John, we wanted to uh, welcome you to the show. We wanted to ask you to tell a little bit about your story and your origin story, so to speak. Talk to us about uh, Aardvark and uh, where it came from. And more importantly, uh, to talk to us about the debrief and uh, how how our paths crossed because of our... Uh, our passion for some of the people that, that change Brent and I's life and, and change your life too. You know, I, I got to say, we got to welcome him back to the show. And if you don't know who John Becker is, we want you to go back and listen to the podcast on culture-centric leadership before you listen to this one and get a feeling for who John is. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about it today, but uh, that's one of the most downloaded podcasts that we have because of the the message that John has. So uh, just take some time and go back and listen to that one. Thanks for interrupting my intro for John. John, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you guys. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate being with you as always. So talk to us a little bit about how you ended up being the founder, CEO, somewhat marketer, somewhat like a one-man show for a while to where you ended up today, uh, owning Aardvark. And then uh, we're going to get to why, why we're really here, and that's to talk about the debrief. But let's start back to your origin story. Yeah, so um, I guess my origin story, it's, uh, you know, I often describe it as I'm tactical Forrest Gump. Uh, I have been in the right place at the right time a ridiculous number of times in my life that has led to, you know, where we are now. Uh, I started Aardvark when I was 17 years old in my mom's den uh, selling rock climbing equipment. So my first year in college, I sat next to a girl that worked for a rock climbing wholesaler. And she said, you know, we should start a mail order business. And I said, yeah, sure. You know, I'm 17 and young and something to do. So, yeah, let's do that. And she flaked right away because she had a job and a husband and was going to college. But um, I, I didn't want to be a sales guy. I didn't want to be that I didn't want that used car sales vibe. So I felt like I needed to know a lot about gear. So I dug into the gear that I was selling and I, I really, I, I climbed on the weekends. I learned about it. I understood it. And pretty soon I started dealing with uh, SWAT teams and spec op units that were buying ropes and harnesses and carabiners. And so I learned as much as I could about that. I, I come from a military family. I, I, you know, dad's a Navy captain, brother's a special operator. And, um, so as, as the business started to grow, I was dealing with more and more SWAT teams and they would say, Hey, can you get us, you know, Eagle nylon gear? I'd say, I don't know anything about that. Oh dude, come down, you know, call this guy. We'll buy our stuff from you. That turned into, can you get us chemical agents? Can you get us MP5s? And so I would, I would always say, I, you know, I don't know anything. Oh, we're doing a class. Come down. You know? So my rule was I'd never turned down free training. By the time I'm 23, I've got over 3,000 hours of special tactics training. I've been through several SWAT schools and MP5 schools. And just by dumb luck, the guys that I learned from were the guys that created it. 
So I learned to throw a flashbang from Sid Hale. I learned to shoot an MP5 from Phil Singleton and R.K. Miller. And, you know, it, it is it was a remarkable stroke of luck that I was there at the time that the tactical market was expanding. You know, I started work in 87. So it's just post 84 Olympic games. SWAT as, as a concept is spreading across the nation and the center of excellence for tactical stuff was in LA. And so, you know, the guys that brought me up were Ron McCarthy and Sid Hale and Mike Hillman. And at the time they were just the guys doing the job. Now we look back and, and, they're, they're the, you know, they are the origin story, but, um, you know, as, as the business grew, we started doing more and more military stuff, more tactical stuff. I went to law school. I spent two years while I was in law school, working at LAPD police litigation that happened to be at a time that Rodney King was happening and Reginald Denny and the SIS cases. And it's just, it is a story of me being in the right place at the right time and meeting the right people. And then I guess being willing to take chances and, and and grow the business. But, but that's really, you know, Aardvark today is a direct result of now 37 years of relationships with the tactical community where the community invested in me and spent time training me and spent time teaching me and provided me with access to an extremely private community that allowed me to build what we've built. Yeah. And let's not, that's a lot of hard work on your part, but we want to, you literally were brought up by the forefathers of SWAT, the, the innovators, the pioneers in the tactical community. You were in the right place at the right time. And for Brent and I, that's one of our passions because we we're probably the last generation that's been taught in person by those guys. And, you know, every time I think about, you know, today Brent and I spent several hours with Mike Hillman and, and every time I, it's like gold talking to Mike Hillman. And, and here's a guy that helped invent the things that Brent and I just grew up learning to do. Yeah. I think, I think the thing that, that is easy to forget and, and now, you know, at this point in my career, looking back retrospectively, as we've begun to build this, this debrief project, you know, I've, I've had an opportunity to go back and really research my friends and research the guys that brought me up and, and, you know, John Coleman and Tim Anderson and Mike Hillman and Ron and Sid. And, and what I realized as I began to interview these guys and as I began to do my homework was there's a lot of things that we take for granted now that are just taught that weren't the case when those guys were handed the problem. Right. When LAPD SWAT starts, nobody knows how to do a high risk entry. Nobody knows how to do a hostage rescue. Flashbangs don't exist. Uh, you know, one of the interviews I did was with Mike Hillman. And, you know, between Mike Hillman and Sid Hale, you'll hear the origin stories of flashbangs. Part of which starts with Mike Hillman at Delta Force drilling a hole in the top of an M116A1 grenade simulator by hand to glue on a fuse. You know, and, and it's like, as you started to talk to these guys and you started talking about the 84 summer games and, and the fear that, that came with it, you know, you, you heard things like, well, we were afraid that they were going to take hostages and put them in a bus. Okay. So, so what's tell, a, yeah, yeah, so what's tell a me linear that, assault look like? The, well, we there, all, we all learn them in basic SWAT school, but no one had done that before. Yeah. Linear assault is not even a concept they're using, 
right? It's like, well, what if they take a bus? How do we enter a bus when there's a hostage taker? How do we stop a bus? And, and so there was this, you know, those guys were tasked with solving the problem from scratch and had to go back and develop very deep pockets of knowledge that honestly don't exist anymore because they were, they were the originators. They were the guys, you know, Sid and I talk at length about flashbangs and his development of the NTOA's flashbang manual. When, when he was tasked with it, like literally flashbangs had just come to the market. Nobody knew what they were. They were starting to use them, but they didn't even really understand how they worked. And so part of the reason that Sid becomes the flashbang expert is Sid is put on a project for six months, building a manual on flashbangs and travels all over the world to learn about flashbangs. So it's, it's, you know, that first generation solved the problems in ways that are now difficult to understand. And, and so we've, you know, we're starting to lose that knowledge. Yeah. And, and, we are. And, and then we have new problems now, right? And, and we talk a lot about being a student of the game and, and of your profession and learning your history. So back to law school. You're in law school. The flashbangs are coming out. The NTOA is coming out. And that's, that's when you start learning how to research and write. Yeah. So, so I, um, by the time I get to law school, I've got a bunch of training. Um, my interest is in tactical law enforcement. That's who I'm working with. The, the thing I didn't understand, and, and now looking back at, at the founding of a business, when when Aardvark starts, everybody that buys armor from Aardvark, I fit. Everybody that that buys anything from Aardvark, I mean, you, you talk to people that have known me for a really long time, they'll tell you about, you know, John selling gear out of the back of his Jeep. Um, but what I didn't understand at the time was- He looked like Keanu Reeves, by the way, back then. Yeah. He looked of... like a like Keanu Reeves with hope in his eyes. Yeah. Yeah, you guys have taken that away. Um, but no, it, it is is I as I started to work with these teams, I realized the guys I'm armoring are my friends. And so I really cared if they got hurt because you know, we were going to the river that weekend or or we vacationed together. Uh, you know, they were in my wedding, whatever. So it it built a culture where my life focus was driven around tactical law enforcement, specifically SWAT work. And that's what I was training. That's who I was hanging out with. That's what I was studying. So when I got to law school, that was what interested me was civil rights litigation. And it was right at the explosion of civil rights litigation for law enforcement. It's when Stephen Yagman was suing LAPD, Johnny Cochran, the ACLU, you know, Cook and Man was starting to do dog bite cases. And so that was the area that I was doing my research. And so I, I, I wrote a project I did a paper for law school looking at flashbangs because there was nothing. Nobody even had policies in flashbangs. It was it, early 90s was the Wild West. They had 25-page policies on, on uniforms and where to hang pins and badges and nothing on throwing an explosive device into an occupied dwelling. It was that's, that's where we were. So I was at that point, I was teaching the physics and physiology with Sid periodically when he would teach. And so I started to research flashbangs and I wrote a paper talking about civil rights litigation of flashbangs and Langford versus Gates and kind of the evolution of the flashbang and legal aspects. I sent it to Sid to proofread it. He sent it to John Coleman. By then I was already, I think I was the first civilian member of NTOA. It was at a point when NTOA, where if you placed an ad in the magazine, you got the page your ad was on. The magazine was not sent to anybody. And, and so John was nice enough to to make me a member of NTOA and bring me in. And, and John had a profound effect on my career because as I started to write, Sid turned that article over to John. 
And for those of you who don't know, John Coleman, LASD, founder of the NTOA. Yes. Tactical savant. Um, so John had me reformat it and it ended up being a two-part series in, in the Tactical Edge, talking about the legal aspects of flashbangs. And while I was in law school, I wrote on, on all kinds of stuff. I wrote on media interference and tactical situations. And, um, you know, it, it was just, that was where I, where I was interested. That's where I was passionate about. And I got out of law school. I was at a crossroads where I was either going to go practice law or continue to run Aardvark. Aardvark had grown into a real business by then. Yeah. And at that time, that's when Iraq one's kicking off. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're spinning up. I, uh, and and then looking back at history, Sid Sid's task was bringing non lethal, less lethal technology to the military yep. because their mission for the first time is policing and CQB. Yep. And uh, lo and behold, there's a young guy there who has the ability, the means, and the motivation to supply the military with non lethal technology. Yeah, it's it's you know it's another one of those times where our military is being tasked with an unusual mission. Our military was built for, you know, attrition warfare, nation states fighting each other. And all of a sudden we are taking our warfighters and putting them into civilian populations where they're having a variety of threat environments. What a police officer is used to every day, you know, it could be grandma that you pulled over. It could be a gang member with a gun against the door. That was not a typical mission for the military at that point. So as that transition took place, um, we, became involved in it and helped the first, the Marine Corps to develop the non-lethal capability sets. And, and now, you know, 25 years later, every non-lethal capability set that's ever been fielded by the army, Navy, air force, Marine Corps, national guard has been done through aardvark. Uh, it's, you know, millions of pounds of gear, but it was, you know, I have, of- I have buddies that were on their way to Iraq on uh, carriers and Sid landed and introduced them to phone tip rounds. Oh, really? Why they were on their way over. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're still, yeah. well, actually, we just, one of my buddies, uh, we just had a barbecue last weekend. And every time he asked me how Sid's doing, he goes, I remember young boot standing on the carrier and some guy rolls out of a chopper with a bunch of phone tips and starts telling us how we're going to use phone tips on, on people. And we were like, what are we talking about? Yeah. And it's another one of those fortuitous moments in my career where when Somalia kicks off, they they're trying to develop non-lethals, but it's it's evolving so rapidly that the doctrine isn't written. The training isn't done. Um, so, you know, I ended up being involved in, in helping them to understand how to write the rules of engagement and what the technology was. And because there was no time to train, I ended up doing the instructor training and giving them all the training packages. And it was the beginning of the integration business for Aardvark where. I assumed responsibility for their mission. I didn't, I didn't understand that's what it meant at the time, but I assumed responsibility for their end state, making sure that the guys got there with everything they needed and that they were properly documented. And that ultimately is what led to the evolution of our, our large system integration business that we do now with DOD, uh, you know, where my job is to deliver capability, not gear, but that all roots in those, in those early operations yeah and and then aardvark since then has progressed into uh the military goes back into law enforcement not that you had left but you had the ability to scale yeah and, and develop now new technologies 
yep. yourself, such as Project 7. Yeah, what what we did was we, we got a little too big for my own good. We started to diversify into a variety of things. And at some point I realized that really what I care about is tactical. Like we were doing patrol armor and we started like getting on the edges of uniforms and other stuff. And, and what I realized is what I really cared about, what I'm passionate about is, is guys that, that, you know, are engaging in high risk entries and high risk operations. Um, you know, I would say people that put themselves in harm's way for people they don't know. And so we, we actually intentionally contracted the business about 10 years ago and began to focus exclusively on tactical and that, you know, my, my current operator, the, the guy that I support now is everybody from, you know, a, a local PD part-time team to a tier one unit or, or a foreign spec ops unit. Um, and it's, my job is to protect them and refining that mission, um, really consolidated aardvark. And, and that was the genesis of project seven was my frustration with the industry and the ability to protect my guy like I needed to protect him. And and having spent 30 years embedded with units and going out on ops with them and going through training, um, you know, it, it, it drove this um, passion for the end user that, that has kind of now informed all of our future technologies and everything else we're doing. I don't, I don't know that I ever told you this before, but I know guys that were in, overseas in the military and you had a reputation on the ground of caring about what gear landed and 100%. and you would throw in extra gear in the conics boxes and so this is back when guys families were buying them gear and sending them overseas because they weren't getting tactical vest raid vest stuff like that and so you were throwing in a couple extra each time and i don't know what that was and then, um, like, this is this is a kind of a big deal to talk about your character. The, the the leaders on the ground were the ones that were saying, this is who we need to go with, not the bean counters that were looking for the lowest bid all the time. And when you have, you know, colonels, lieutenant colonels, generals on the ground saying, this is what my troops work for my troops, uh, that speaks volumes, right? And if you translate that to police work, that's like, do I go with purchasing who says it's the lowest bid or do I go with a subject matter expert who says this is what will work more efficiently and safely? So I don't know if I ever told you that, but someone told me that story by you. And that's no, a big that's deal. Yeah, no, it's, it's like in the end, you know, when we have new employees, the, the one part, the one part of Aardvark's culture that is absolutely non-negotiable is our primary objective is our end user. The business case will take care of itself. You do the right thing for the end user, whether that end user is, you know, Lance Corporal Schmuckatello in, in Afghanistan or, you know, Officer Jones at the door of a house on a search warrant. You do the right thing by the end user. The rest of it solves itself. And, and this community has, has been amazing to me. And I feel now, you know, this far into my career, a great deal of indebtedness to the people that not only brought me up, but the people that invested their time in Aardvark and that helped us to grow and, and, and cared. And, you know, that's part of my relationship with Cato. It's part of the reason for the debrief is, is it, is this payback to the community. 
John, in, in talking through some of these things, you, you've talked a little bit about some of the relationships with uh, John Coleman and the NTOA and Sid and the development of Aardvark. How did that start to bleed over into uh, your relationship with Cato? So I, I first, obviously, be, before Ken Hubs founded Cato, the NTOA was the only organization. NTOA was founded in, in LA, obviously. Um, when, when Ken, it, it became very clear as the NTOA grew that there was a role for regional associations and national associations, that the interests of the NTOA were international. Right, you go back to the origin story of NTOA when John starts it, and and Mike Hillman's, you know, there with John, building the NTOA. Um, they were it was an international association. It was the only one of its kind, and and at that point, SWAT was so international that you go back to the '84 Olympics and LAPD and LA sheriffs are meeting with GIGN and GSG9 and 22SAS and the SEALs and like Delta at that point and. As as the organization grew, there was a need underneath the NTOA for more regional concerns, right? And so you started to see development. TTPOA grew, NYTOA grew, Ken Hubs founded Cato and single-handedly put it on the map. I mean, you know, the origin story for Ken Hubs or for Cato is Ken Hubs. It does not happen without Ken spending his nights, weekends, everything else, similar to what happened with NTOA, just on a more regional basis. Um, so I, I first became involved there when Kin stepped aside and the, you know, kind of, let's call it the founders took over Sid and RK Miller and Mike and these guys and, you know, and Ron became the leadership of Cato. Um, I, I became very involved in it because it, it, Cato needs to exist. It needs to support their very specific needs for for California organizations, especially California organizations that are different than national, right? We have we have legislators that are trying to completely change the face of tactical law enforcement for the country in just California, and so I, I felt like from the beginning, Cato was an organization that needed to invest. And when when SLP happened, um, obviously my engagement with Cato stepped up, and and then you know now this the, you guys being the third generation of Cato leadership. Um, I, I think are taking Cato in an entirely different direction that is fantastic. In my SLP, you're talking about the strategic leadership program where Brent and I became stepbrothers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, so that, that leads us to a story. So um, I think I must've told this story on the podcast before, but I'm a, I'm a young sergeant taking over the SWAT team. And I know I don't understand the why of what we do. And so I reach out to this place called Field Command and I randomly get this call on my personal cell phone from one Tim Anderson. And Tim uh, was a colonel in the Marine Corps, um, arguably Sid's best friend. And uh, I think inarguably Sid's best friend. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Sid, Odie, and, and Tim made Field Command and Tax Science, and I met them and uh, changed my life. And Tim's the reason why we have the podcast. He's episode one. He's passed away, but he changed our lives. And uh, during SLP one, Brent and I and, and the other group were fortunate enough to meet guys like Coleman, guys like Mike Hillman and Sid and Daryl and Tim. 
and 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 then they changed our lives. And that's why Brent and I are here today. And so we look at this generation and, and as Tim passed away, we realized that we've done a poor job of documenting everything that they did for us. And and Brent and I say this at least once a week. There's not a week that goes by that we don't talk and share a lesson that Tim Anderson taught us about life, about leadership, about police work, about family, about being a dad, something. Something comes up organically every single week. And so you see this happening as well, the people that taught you, the people that changed our profession for the better. And uh, that kind of prompted you to do something about it. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because over the years, you know, obviously these guys have gotten older, they've retired, um, and there is there is no written history. There's a you know there's a written history of LAPD SWAT, there's a written history of SCB, there's no overarching written history telling the story of how this thing came to be, and who the people were that created it, and the work that they put into it. And, and the, the sweat and tears and, and many of them sacrificing their lives for it. And it, it started to bother me as the guys started to retire because I realized we're, we're losing that expertise. As the guys started to die and they started to get sick and they started to have memory issues, it, it really started to catalyze me. And part of the motivation behind SLP, the way that, that the, the Cato board originally envisioned it was to give you guys the experience that I had haphazardly had intentionally. Let's pull together tactical leaders from the state. Let's put them in a room with the founders, with the big thinkers, with the subject matter experts. Let's let them learn from the source. And as we went through SLP one and, and the class got older, you know, we started to see guys getting older. Tim Anderson's death was a catalyzing moment for me because, you know, we were all good friends with Tim. Um, before field command, there was the Aardvark tactical foundation, which was Sid, Tim, Odie, and myself. And Tim was really kind of the opso for the foundation. And he, apart from being an amazing human being from being just, I mean, a wonderful person, you know, a Marine Colonel with combat experience, a, a, you know, an LAPD SWAT sergeant and canine sergeant, and like just had this amazing understanding of tactical science. And when Tim got ALS, we knew there wasn't a lot of time. And there was no way for us to capture what was in his head. And it was the origin for podcast. And, and, you know, thank God you guys sat down with him and had that conversation. But a great deal of things died with Tim. I mean, apart from all of us being heartbroken for the tactical community, there was a wealth of knowledge that evaporated on the day. And, And it really bothered me. And so we started thinking through how could we start to capture this? And we realized it couldn't be within the scope of an organization. You know, it couldn't be an agency that was doing it. 
It had to have an international reach because it's an international story. All of these stories are international stories. Um, and so we kind of started bantering back and forth the idea of shooting interviews with them, sitting down one by one with people that we thought were either historically significant, current thought leaders, subject matter experts, people that had had unique experiences and trying to capture those experiences in a way that we could scale it. Because it is amazing that 10 of you guys had the opportunity to sit down with these guys. But if that could have been 10,000, you reshape the community. And there isn't a vehicle through which to do that. So, you know, the, the nice thing about Aardvark and about where I am as, as an external business, an external organization, is I can make bad business decisions. I can make a decision to do something because I care about it and I'm passionate about it and not have to go ask for money and not have to sign MOUs. And, you know, it's, it's the combination of our lecture series. I mean, that was the origin of our lecture series was we had access to teams all over the world who had amazing stories to tell and nobody was ever going to hear them. And so we started the lecture series probably 15 years ago, 20 years ago with just doing debriefs where we would, you know, something would happen, an event would happen. We would pull together the local teams and because we weren't and a law enforcement organization, I could prevent people from coming. I could handpick a guest list. I could exclude the media. I could tell people they had to leave their phones outside. Like I could make up my own rules, which then allowed us to have a more candid discussion than we otherwise would have. That, that combined with this catalytic event of, of losing Tim and, and the other guys getting sick and other stuff just said like, we just need to do this and we need to do it outside of the organization of anybody. And, and it became very clear as we were doing this, that we had access. I had access to all of these guys because I had known most of them almost my entire life. And so originally I thought we'll do a documentary and it ended up with no, these have to be personal conversations and, and I'm the only one that can do it. So I, I, I picked me as the last possible host and ended up being the only one that could do it. It was not, this was not like, Hey, this will be awesome. I'll be a host. It was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. But it's just a unique spot because you know, all these folks and, and, and you're not media. So, so you can go talk to these folks, have them tell their lessons learned for the rest of us to have. And they can make sure it's okay. And then the tactical community looks at it and says, you're not sharing any particular secrets or telling the, the adversary things you shouldn't tell them, but, but share those valuable lessons. And, and unfortunately we don't have uh, that kind of trust in, in, in the media or uh, a media company. So, so to speak. Yeah. That, that was one of the things when we first conceived this, I reached out to a lot of friends both, both present and retired. And, you know, obviously a big concern for this community is, is confidentiality, is, is secrecy, is perspective. Um, you know, it's very easy to take information and take things that people say and cut them out of context and use them. And we see this happening all the time. And, and what's unfortunate with that is that you, you have a very vocal opposition to law enforcement who are constantly out attacking tactics, attacking, you know, attacking agencies, attacking people. 
And there is no organized opposition. There is nothing, there's no one that is able to advocate for law enforcement because the agencies know if they talk to the media, everything's going to be taken out of context and used against them. So what ends up happening is you have a vocal opposition that is, is screaming about tactics and law enforcement is quiet. And so these stories don't get told and they don't get told because nobody's trusted. So when, when we first had this conversation, I sat down with a number of my trusted advisor friends and the, the one statement that got me was the current commander of a major metropolitan team who said, you are the only one they all trust enough to talk to on tape. Because it has to be somebody from the outside. Yeah. It has to be someone that understands the community, but is not in the community. And that's a rare person, right? It, it's a rare person that can understand the community, but be objective about it, but care about it. And, and in our society, we struggle with disagreeing and still caring about one another. We don't know how to do that anymore. Yeah. It's so. a real challenge. Well, and it's also, it's also some, you know, I realized one of the other unique positions that we were in is because it's my game and it's my marbles, I make the rules. Nobody else has access to the footage, which means I can have an interview with somebody that is very candid and, and very open. And then collectively, we can go back and make a decision what we want to release versus not release and and maintain total editorial control. Because the minute, you know, we looked at how how could we fund, a, 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 you know, if we did some kind of a documentary or some kind of a research project, how do we fund it? Well, anybody that you fund it with is going to own the footage, which means the offhanded comment that, you know, we all hear made all the time that's on on a microphone is going to end up in a documentary. And so it had to be, I need the, I need complete ability to delete things that shouldn't be out to exclude things that are tactical in nature and specific enough that they could be, you know, weaponized against law enforcement, but still be able to tell the stories. And so, you know, we've kind of created a process where we're doing the interviews, we're editing the interviews, we're taking them back to the person that we do the interview with and having them listen to it to make sure that they're okay with it. Cause the other weird responsibility I inherited here is these are my friends and some of them are giving the last interview they're ever going to give. And so this, th this could end up being a definitive piece of their history. And the, the responsibility of that is not lost on me. Like I feel the weight of that. Every time I do an interview, I feel the weight of that. And, and I know that I better get it right. And so we've built a process where we edit, the person listens to it, and then we send it to a couple of, of people, you know, mostly, you know, Cato board members, those kinds of people who we know we can trust, who look at it objectively and say, yeah, this is good to go, or you probably shouldn't include this. And so what we're talking about is your new project, your, your passion project. For sure which you have uh, aptly named the debrief, which is, I guess, best described as a video podcast. Yeah. I mean, if pre-podcast, it would have been an interview show. Right. Now, now it's a video Now it's called podcast. a video podcast. Yeah. Right, right. Like live podcast, which we used to call radio. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. This is a live podcast. You can call in. Oh, isn't that, isn't that radio? Isn't that radio? I thought that was radio. Yeah. Uh, so, so you sit down with these folks 
uh, legend influencers, some foundational members of the tactical community. You have kind of a sit down long format interview. You have some, some discussions about really some integral moments in the tactical community and in their lives, uh, several of which might've been related to a leadership decision, such as like a hostage rescue problem, or it could be a technology development like the flashbang or SID with non-lethal technology or training. And you cover these topics so that they're, they're editorial, they're, they're documented for the rest of us to learn from. And, and some of these people, like you said, I, I know them, no one else will get to interview them again. That will be their last interview. Yeah. And, and that's, that's history lost, you know, in the, in the word of Daryl Evans, history is the repository of all lessons. Yeah. And yeah. And when history is lost, lessons are lost. And if any, anything we know about law enforcement in this profession is that we repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And unfortunately those mistakes are, are written in the blood of our brothers and sisters. So, um, what else do you talk about? What else have you done on the debrief so far? Cause you're getting ready to release it. And, uh, Brent and I are a big fan of it. A uh, pretty elite group of people you've interviewed. Uh, in, in reality, uh, just amazing human beings, man. Yeah. Uh, it's Amazing know, human beings. It, it, it's interesting because I, I, I started off with an agenda of like, I'm going to talk to Sid about tactical science. You know, I'm going to talk to Mike Hillman about tactical planning. And, and like, I had these big dreams of this, this kind of, these are the, you know, I'm going to ask these questions. And I realized early on, as these conversations evolved, there were so many moments in these people's lives that were not only pivotal moments in their career, but changed who they were as people. And, you know, it's, it's kind of broken down into like, I guess silos for lack of a better term. Like there are people there, you know, I've interviewed a lot of the legends and, and over the next, like the, we've now recorded the first season which, which will start June 8th and be every two weeks until the end of the year, basically. I've already set up interviews for the second season. So we've got 13 episodes, 14 episodes already completed. Um, and then you know, we'll start the second season. It's, it's history. You know, it's, it's talking to Ron McCarthy about the origins of LAPD SWAT. It's talking to Sid Hale about, you know, Somalia and, the first uses of flashbangs and, uh, you know, and then it's, it's kind of, so let's call that legends. Then there's a group of leaders. You know, I, I interviewed Lee McMillian, who's the current Lieutenant for, for LAPD SWAT. And, you know, I, I know you guys are big fans. Um, you know, John Perez, who's the Pasadena chief of police. Like, so we're talking about leadership in a lot of those things and, and leader situations. We did a few interviews that are focused on training and technology. One, I interviewed two of the Cato board members, or Cato board member and and affiliate board member, George, you know, Josh Wolford and uh, Toby Darby, talking about decision making exercises and how decision making exercises can kind of reshape the way an agency thinks about their tactics. Uh, did an interview with Chris Allshouse talking about drones and kind of the overlook of of where drones are taking us and the effect on the on the Fourth Amendment and and privacy um then we've done a couple of critical incident reviews and the critical incident reviews are like a true debrief but taken from the perspective of one person uh, so i interviewed a guy named buddy brown 
um, from York, South Carolina. Buddy's team was involved in a horrific shootout where one of their canines was shot. One of their officers was killed. Uh, Buddy was shot in, in the femoral artery and the head and survived. Um, and, and it's, it's going through those events and talking about the mistakes that were made and how could we have done this differently? And so, you know, it's, it's, it's these kind of critical incident reviews. And then what we'll do at the end of the first season is we're going to go through those interviews and kind of cherry pick topics because we're talking about so many people that have talked about history that, you know, like the history of flashbangs doesn't happen without Mike Hillman. It doesn't happen without Sid Hale. Uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of, we'll take those and cut them into horizontal strips for lack of a better term. They're special features about specific topics, you know, the origin of, of SWAT, the origin of, of SEB, um, those kinds of things. But it's, um, it, it's been an amazing journey where I've been re-exposed to these guys that brought me up from an entirely different perspective. And the interviews have been so much more personal and emotional and um, deep than I ever would have expected. Like I, I, it's amazing how many of these interviews are leading to, you know, teared up moments of describing, you know, horrific events from their careers or, or moments where you realize like, you know, Sid Hale almost didn't make it past the rank of corporal in the Marine Corps <laughs> a, a couple of times, times. Yeah. <laughs> to then end up being the ranking CW5 in the Marine Corps. But it's, it's been, it's been a really, it's been a really amazing process. And so let's talk a little bit about that. So you, you started this out and uh, I know talking with some of these folks that we spend time with, and then you sit them down and you tell them ahead of time what you're going to talk about. And sometimes you can control where the direction's going. Sometimes you can't. And you learn things that you didn't know about somebody that you've known for 30 years. Your whole adult life, you've known Sid, you've known Mike. Yeah. And then you sit down with him and Mike starts telling you a story about how he smuggled flashbangs back to LA from Delta Force on him. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, you know, and you're like, well, I never, that never came up before. It's, I tell you, it is, it is fascinating. You can know people for so many years and you just, you pull the right thread in a conversation and, you know, like all of these guys have these just amazing stories that are, that are both inspirational and educational that no one's ever seen. They're not written down anywhere. They're not in any article. They, they wouldn't talk about them in, you know, in mixed company, but, um, it's been, it's been amazing. I've learned so much about the history that I didn't even realize. And they're so, I mean, I know a lot of your guests and they're all brilliant people and humble yeah and have dedicated their lives to service to service the community to serving our profession and we've had a couple of those folks on the podcast and brent and i have had a chance to meet all of most of them in slp1 yeah. and uh and you know some no one will get to meet again and so it's uh it's super emotional for me to talk about it yeah. you know because those guys changed my life and uh and i owe them so much and it's not even that i accomplished anything it's just that they they invested in me and, and who am I, right? They just, and that's the kind of people they are today. Brent and I spent four hours with Mike Hillman and he did that for free to just help us. And I can't think of anything Brent and I've ever done for Mike Hillman. That's yeah, just the guy he is. Well, that's the interesting thing about almost everybody I've interviewed. In fact, everybody I've interviewed 
cares more about the community than they do themselves. Um, I've, I've not interviewed anybody that I felt is there because they're building a brand. In fact, I had to threaten to release pictures on some of these guys to get them to sit down with me. Um, you know, it, it, these are humble, quiet professionals. And, and I realized very early on in this process that the downside to these guys, especially the older guys, the legends being as bright and shiny as they were, you know, the downside to Sid Hale being the nation's expert on flashbangs is nobody was behind him because who was going to question Sid's knowledge. And if Sid's there to teach flashbangs, why the hell would you need anybody else? The problem is when Sid leaves, there is nobody. And so that was our generation, right? I'm generation X. That was our generation. We're growing up in the shadows of these legends. And there are certainly some standouts, Lee McMillian being one where, you know, they took the art to an entirely different level, but there is a gap in the history and in the development of this knowledge that your generation is now having to pick up because these guys are, are, are going away. They're retiring. You must be talking about Brent because he's so young. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he's so young. I mean, he looks old. He looks old as hell, but he's actually many years younger than me. Yes, yes. He's a, by, mill a millennial or by something. By birth, age, and mileage. Yeah. I mean, he fair. hasn't really done that much. That's very fair. So you, you're right. You bring up a great point. And uh, I remember one time traveling with Sid and Tim and Odie and – they had me teaching logistics for field command, which is like, thanks a lot. No one wants to take a class on logistics. And I'm in there teaching and I'm like, hey guys, like, I get it. I can teach it. I know it. But man, like, how am I going to teach with you three? Like, I'm not, I haven't done that. I didn't work for LAPD. I didn't, haven't done hundreds of SWAT operations a year. I haven't been in the military and done all the things they've done and, they kind of looked at me very humbly and Tim says, Hey kid, no one's ever going to be like us because we're never going to fight wars like this again. No agency is ever going to let us go fight all these wars. Sid being in every conflict since Vietnam, either participating or being present on scene to conduct, you know, a quick review and reporting back to the white house. The whole time being in working for one of the busiest law enforcement agencies in the country. No one's going to do that anymore. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because one of the things that the guys discovered with field command, the military has a very formal leadership training program. Um, you know, Sid talks about it in his, in his interview with me. Um, you know, he, he said it was 10 years before I led men in combat. And by then I was prepared. I knew what I was doing. He said, when they promoted me to Lieutenant, they handed me a new set of, pins to put on my collar and said, okay, good luck. Um, he said with captain, it was the same thing. Like there isn't this formalized program. And the, the, the downside to that is leadership is, is not being taught at a deep level in law enforcement, especially tactical leadership, because it is for many agents, such an unfrequent thing, right? It, it doesn't happen very often. And, and the agencies that hold that information, whether it's LA sheriffs or LAPD or, you know, Miami or Dallas or any of the, you know, New York, the big agencies tend to share within themselves, but there isn't this like, let's go capture that information and disperse it. 
the law enforcement community doesn't study tactics and strategy the way the military does. And we, and we don't share it because we're generally involved in litigation for three to seven years. Correct. And we haven't figured out a way that we can fix that. And uh, if you've ever heard Gordon Graham, uh, like on our podcast, talking about how there should be a uh, what uh, NIT or NHSB, the, the NTSB. Air, thank you. The NTSB version of law enforcement after action. Yeah. Where you can't sue them because they're their own entity and they're going to come in independently and say what you did good, what you said bad, so that the rest of us can learn and we don't keep doing it. And I, I can't really argue against that. I don't like it because if it's a federal deal, they're going to screw it all up and they're going to apply weird rules where, you know, the good thing about American law enforcement is it has to fit the community in which it serves. The bad thing is some of those communities can't afford to pay, train, or get the right people to solve those high-risk, low-frequency events. When there's a very broad spectrum of political acceptedness I mean, as as somebody who's dealt with teams all over the world, what plays in Paris, France would not play in Dallas, Texas. What plays in Dallas, Texas would not play in Paris, France, right? Even, even within the United States, L.A. versus Dallas versus Miami, law enforcement is ridiculously regionally. They say all politics are local. All law enforcement is local. And, and the upside to that is law enforcement is very personal in the United States, and it's not necessarily in other countries where it is a completely federalized law enforcement agency. The downside to it is there isn't this formal mechanism to capture it. And so what we started to realize when we first started doing the lecture series is there's a disincentive for law enforcement to learn lessons. There is a disincentive for law enforcement to take an introspective, honest look and come back and share that information. Because they get sued for it, they get vilified in the press for it, and anything that they do officially within the agency is discoverable. So you don't really want to dig too far because you might find something that the next plaintiff's attorney is going to request. And, you know, as somebody who's been to, in my career, got thousands of debriefs, the difference between a military debrief and a law enforcement debrief is profound. I mean, it, it, the depth to which things go, the the introspection, the brutal honesty that I've seen in, in military debriefs, you generally don't see in law enforcement debriefs. And the farther up the chain of command it goes, and the more conferences it's presented at, the more it tends to be sanitized and whitewashed. And by the time they're done, it's a hero story, and there's no there's no value to it. And so, like, we realized early on with our lecture series, the first question I ask people is, what went wrong with your operation? Like, hey, you know, I heard about this incident. We'd love to have you come do a debrief with us. What went wrong with your incident? If the answer is nothing, things went great, we're not going to present the debrief. So success isn't always measured by the results. And we, and we know that, but we don't act like we know it. So you can do everything right and have a bad outcome, or you can do a lot of stuff wrong and have a good outcome. And in the words of uh, Odenthal, Never confuse good luck with good tactics, right? Yeah, and, and success has many fathers. Failure is an orphan. And and it is amazing how, you know, because of the environment between litigation and media environment, we've created a disincentive for people to take an honest look. What I realized early on with the lecture series, and I'm now realizing more with the debrief, is we're in a position that we can have those conversations and nobody knows they happened unless we release them. 
and and we can talk very deeply about things and then I can delete whatever footage we have and that never happened and I'm not discoverable and and I'm not in anybody's chain of command and so it it just it created this opportunity for us to have these very frank and honest conversations um that that are are like profoundly personal and and very deep and at the same time, really interesting and, and educational. And, and the thing is, what I realized right away as we were doing this is you don't hear need to hear the specifics of Buddy Brown's shooting to understand the lessons. I don't need to tell you how many guys went through the door or what happened or how they found it. He can give you an overview of that and then say, here was our problems. Like we were having comms problems and we didn't take a moment and stop and fix it. You know, we lost track of team members. We lost track of the suspect. Our helicopter got shot down. Like all of these, these things, you just start to realize like th those are, those are invaluable international lessons. Uh, you know, I, I mean, you right. guys have been to hundreds of debriefs. Yeah. Like every single debrief starts with, we were having comms problems. Right. Right. I've never been to a debrief that they weren't having comms problems. So it, it gives you this opportunity to look at what really matters here. And and then have a really honest conversation about it. And sometimes they're not catastrophic events. They're a series of minor events that at the same time Murphy kicks in and your adversary goes out at the right time in the right place to clag it all off in the wrong direction. It's interesting. Years ago, I had a conversation with an Air Force general who was tasked with investigating um, a, a pretty significant plane crash that happened. And And I said, what went wrong? And he said, that's never the question. And I said, like, you know, trying to figure out why a plane crashed. What do you mean? What, what went wrong is he said, it's not what went wrong. He said, what was the chain of events that led up to the crash? Because it's not a single event. It is a series of events. And he said, we're not trying to prevent the last link in the chain. We're trying to prevent all the links in the chain. Yeah, the accident chain, man. Getting to read up on, on a lot of those things and you start to identify what is it that if we would have done this one thing here or recognize this one issue here could have prevented a lot of the, the, the different things that are coming and being aware and being critical um, and, and, and seeing that and being decisive about stopping and preventing those things. And it's hard to measure. Um, if I would have done this, then, then this wouldn't have happened. Or it's hard to measure when you make a decision knowing that you prevented something from occurring. But just being the only way you can get that awareness is is through these after action reports and through these type of interviews and, and, and the debriefs and, and the type of stuff that, uh, that the debrief presents. So we definitely encourage people to take some time and, and, and learn from, from the historical figures and the subject matter experts that, uh, that, uh, that, that John's interviewed. Yeah. I think you're going to enjoy it. So let's talk a little bit about when it's released and, uh, where people can find it. So we're launching it June 8th. And like I said, it'll be the, the initial launch. We're launching two episodes on the first day. We, we interviewed Lee McMillian, who is the 110 David, the one of two lieutenants that runs LAPD D platoon or SWAT. And then uh, we also did, I did a two part series with Sid Hale and we're going to launch the first part of that on June 8th. Um, so we're launching two, two blocks. The show averages between like an hour and 15 and hour 40 depending on if it's more than like an hour 30, we're splitting it into two episodes. So the first part of Sid is talking about the history and evolution and his career and, and Sid Hale, man, myth, legend. The second part, we're digging deep on tactical science 
and and we're going in and talking about the in-state and you know all that time and terrain baby time, time and, and terrain. terrain exactly um so so that's june 8th two weeks later we'll launch the next episode and you know it'll be every two weeks from then on you know so some of the people we've interviewed you know sid ron mccarthy mike hillman lee mcmillian john perez who recently retired chief at pasadena pd uh brent stratton and marcus sprague the host of the cato podcast pretty big deal yeah. those guys were huge i don't know pretty about that deal. you know when you start seeing some of the names and hearing people You're talk like, about i'm not what? really sure how the hell we get into this thing <laughs> yeah, and that's hey. not false humility that's really uh i don't <laughs> yeah. know how the hell we, we made yeah. our way into this yeah. thing no I, I think the thing is i think it's important that we're presenting a full spectrum right it's it's there there are three now four generations that are impacting special tactics in the united states starting with Ron McCarthy's generation and and going all the way to the 21-year-old that's currently, you know, whatever he is, a Gen Z or millennial or whatever. I don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't believe in labels here, yeah, John. Yeah, yeah, And I think, Brent, he just called you the bell curve. I think he just called you the bell curve on the debrief. You are 100% the bell curve, yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, we did, we did an interview with Dana Vylander who, uh, great guy. Dana's fantastic. Yeah. And it's, and the thing is like, you know, I realized as I start talking to these guys, like Dana is one of the nation's foremost experts on TCCC. You would never know that. Like Dana doesn't run around and go, Hey, everybody look at me, look at my resume. Uh, you know, 25 years at LA Sheriff's CSD, like SWAT canine, uh, was involved from the beginning in the early Tim's efforts can do anything you need to do with a rope. Oh yeah. And, Ropes. And teaches rural operations with some of the highest performing folks on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. Is teaching medical stuff with, with tier one units. Um, so it's, it's, you know, we, we talked to him, we talked to Ed Hinchy who runs a saves program from Safari land. Uh, Ed had Ed, Ed's partner, Eddie Limbacher was the victim of the only failure of concealable body armor in American history by a round it was designed to, to defeat. So seven and a half months into wearing his vest, his vest fails to a handgun round that should have easily stopped in it, triggers the Zylon recall and resets the entire NIJ standard. Ed is present at all of that because he's Eddie's partner, watches the evolution of armor happen and is then shot in a vest, saved by his armor retires and runs the saves program for safari land so we talked about shootings and what happens when guys are shot and how should an agency deal with it and it's just you know it's it's amazing how deep the knowledge of these guys is yeah and talk about a guy with first not only firsthand experience from his partner but yeah. since then yeah hundred thousands thousands so, so of people ed hinchy has talked to you know and, and i don't even have to do the math on this ed has talked to more survivors of police shootings than anybody in the world. And I mean, he has interacted with saves since I think he was like save, uh, Safari land save like 941 or nine. He was in the nine hundreds. They're now in the 2400s. Ed has interacted with every single person since then shield saves, helmet saves, you know, and seen the right way to deal with somebody being shot in your agency in the wrong way. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, we will launch every two weeks, a new episode. And, and they'll they'll vary from week to week. Um, you know, the topics will vary. The nature of the interviews will vary. Um, and, and my hope is that people are going to interact with this. People are going to ask questions. People are going to give us ideas and criticize. 
Um, we've created a, a website for the podcast, which is thedebrief.live. And, you know, there will be an Instagram profile, which I think is just the debrief. Um, but, you know, the, the, the show will be available on YouTube. It'll be available on the website. Um, it, it, you know, one thing I think it's important is like, this is not an aardvark thing. This is not, this is not branded aardvark. This is not, you know, aardvark will probably reshare the episodes to broaden the audience, but this is not an aardvark thing. This is a John thing that is separate from aardvark and is really focused on my relationship with the community. And so it, it is, it is separate from the two. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, our, our end users are going to interact with it, are going to share it, are going to learn from it and are going to provide us with criticism and suggestions and ideas to help us better serve the community and bring them the, the messaging and the things that they want to understand. And, and, you know, we'll use our relationships to reach people that, that are interesting. So if, if your listeners have ideas or like, Oh my God, you should interview this guy, please let us know. Well, I know right now they're going to say you need to have Brent Marcus back on that show because yeah. they, they didn't get enough of him. 100%. Yeah, we need, more, we need more stepbrothers. I highly yeah. doubt that. Yeah, they're going to say we need more cowbell and then we need more Marcus. <laughs> more cowbell, more Marcus Frank. Yeah. yeah, well, John, uh, we thought it was important that uh, you share why you ended up doing this project and what the project's about. And uh, we're a little jealous because you get to spend time more time than we do with some of those guys because they – they really shaped our profession for the better. And there's a gap. There's a gap in our generations now where we don't have as many of those people anymore. And it's time for us to step up and start learning and taking that responsibility on our own like they did. And every single one of those folks I've met didn't just go to work every day and go home, didn't just do their training program from their agency. They were reading, they were learning, they were networking, they were solving problems, they were looking at things from different angles. In they order were students to, of the game. Yeah, they were students of the game. And uh, that's a recurring theme, I think, on the Cato podcast, wouldn't you say, Brent? Yeah, and I think for those of you who are tuning in on this, you are those people. You're listening to this because you're trying to, to be better, and that is really what the focus of Cato is, that we can work on trying to keep this organization alive and running and financially uh, uh, strong to be able to provide training to you. You're already taking those steps to better yourselves and to better our profession. And the people in your department are relying on you. And the people that you serve in your communities, they're relying on you. And that is really uh, the goal of, of Cato. And I know John, he said it, you know, much more eloquently, but that's his heart and what he does, um, as well. So we want to encourage you that you are, uh, you are a part of that and recognize that you are a part of that and a person, uh, that does that within this profession and, uh, within your own agency. So thanks for what you do. Absolutely guys. I, I can't thank you enough. And you guys, you know, it, it isn't said often enough that, that the, the board of Cato, the members of Cato, uh, the instructors in Cato are spending private time to spread, you know, this information and this podcast is having an impact. You know, I hear people talking about how the Cato podcast, Oh, did you hear this guy? Did you hear that guy? Um, this podcast was part of the motivation behind the debrief because listening to you guys, it, you know, I, I listen to every episode and it, you are, you are having conversations that need to happen 
and the efforts that you guys are putting in and knowing both of you and seeing how much effort you're putting into Cato, it is making a difference and you should be proud of what you're doing with the organization. And any officer in California that is not a member of Cato is missing out. There is no reason to not be a member of Cato and, and not be investing in the organization that is carrying forward this information because you are the vehicle through which all of these lessons are being taught. And, and I hope you guys, you know, understand how important that is. Well, thanks. Thanks, John. It's labor of love for sure. It, it absolutely is. It's, uh, and hopefully, uh, those of you that have been with us since episode one, uh, see that we care and that we're doing our best to give you stuff that will be actionable, that will help you make better decisions, be safer, serve your community better, and remind you that there's a history of people that went before you. There'll be people behind you, and what you do is a noble calling, and, and never forget that. So, hope you enjoyed the show. Check out uh, the the June 8th release, and uh, we'll put links to the website, the YouTube, and uh, Instagram, and uh, we'll see you real soon. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.